Professor Aurora from uh, Sheffield, Faculty of Law. She's a, uh, a world leader on debate about the recent uh, EU ban on uh, stem cell patents, embryonic stem cell patents, actually, and uh, is uh, led a very uh, important Wellcome Trust workshop looking at the implications of this kind of approach to the regulation of science. Thank you, Julian. And may I also just add that uh, I led a project uh, which was funded by the European Commission uh, back in 2005, uh, um, which looked at the scope of exclusions, specifically with the moral exclusion on human embryonic stem cell patterns. And that project actually uh, produced a report which was, which was, it was published by the Commission and then it was relied upon by the UK in its submission to the Brussels ruling at uh, the European Court of Justice. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to say European Court of Justice, so you, of EU Court, even though its name has been changed since the Lisbon Treaty into an unmanageable Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, so uh, I will try and stay clear from that, um, that uh, definition. And um, uh, the, the report then, following that report, uh, we produced a collection of articles uh, which and chapters in a book uh, which was published by OUP, uh, which was also uh, used by the or relied upon by the defendant by the applicants in the case. Uh, although, as those of you who know the ruling uh, also will know, it's been comprehensively ignored by the European Court of Justice, unfortunately. Okay, well, I'm very pleased to be here today uh, to talk about this ruling. Uh, the title of my talk. Uh, is actually lifted from a piece, uh, a headline that The Guardian used in a piece which I wrote last month, uh, uh, in which I set out very briefly some of the very serious flaws I think uh, there are with this ruling. Uh, and so I very much welcome the opportunity to talk about, to talk about this in more detail to you today. What I will do uh, in this talk is set out briefly the context to uh, the adoption of this exclusion in the directive. Uh, I will then talk also briefly about the ruling itself and the reasoning of the court, uh, then explain why I think it is problematic, and then end up with a series of emerging questions which I think uh, will uh, need to be addressed now after this ruling. I'm not sure how many of you are lawyers in this audience. Can I ask those of you? All right, excellent. Okay, good. Well, I have assumed that uh, that we, not everyone necessarily would be a lawyer, so I apologise if I oversimplify things at times. Um, now, this uh, the moral exclusion, which was the subject of the court's ruling uh, in the directive, uh, um, was actually relates to a directive which was adopted by the European Union uh, in 1998. Now, the a directive uh, is a framework law. Uh, it lays down certain results to be achieved by member states, but it leaves uh, the choice of the measures to be taken to achieve those results to member states. Now, the directive itself uh, had a very fraught passage through the European uh, Union legislative institutions. Uh, the Commission had originally introduced the proposal to adopt this directive uh, in order to... Um, address what it thought, thought were issues uh, about potential loss of competitiveness against the US in, partic in particular in a field which it foresaw would be of crucial economic importance for the EU. So the aim of the directive, uh, as the Commission saw it then, was to remove uh, potential barriers created by differences in national patent laws in order to enhance European competitiveness. But there was substantial pressure from within the European Parliament uh, across quite a broad spectrum of political parties, but mainly Greenpeace and or Green parties and uh, Christian Democrats, but not only them, <laughs> you know, not only them, uh, to set some ethical limits to patents, particularly patents on life. Uh, and this, is, this led to a very protracted uh, debate and discussions. It actually led to a veto uh, 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 of the first draft uh, of a directive in 95, and it was the first time the European Parliament had actually vetoed a directive. So very significant uh, political differences there. But eventually, 
there was a settlement, a compromise on the wording of the directive uh, and uh, the moral exclusion specifically on, um, on uses, commercial industrial uses of human embryos is part of this wording compromise which consisted of adding a list of illustrative examples in, art, in, in part two of Article 6, uh, specifically Article 6 to C, which uh, deems unpatentable uses of human embryos for industrial or commercial purposes. Now, from the very beginning, really, and because of, partly because of the historical timing you know, of, this, of this directive, uh, and the fact that Jamie Thompson's research was published in 1998 uh, as well, uh, more or less at the same time as the directive, uh, it was, the question was raised of what the meaning and scope of this exclusion was. And specifically, one of the questions which arose was whether the exclusion related only to uses of human embryos or whether it reached further than human embryos and precluded patterns on stem cells derived on stem cells or stem cell lines derived from human embryos uh, and if so, you know, how far downstream really in the discovery chain. Um, that was one of the range of questions which was at the centre uh, of uh, all the um, litigation that has surrounded this directive. And the second one was the uh, significance, if any at all, of the qualification that it was industrial or commercial purposes which were specifically uh, excluded here, or at least mentioned in this clause. What was the significance of this qualification? Now what actually happened is that uh, after 98, uh, the, these questions were considered by member states uh, at the time they transposed the directive, and actually many of them delayed and were in breach of the deadline set by the directive, were taken to the European Court of Justice. Uh, it took more than seven years eventually for member states to implement this directive, all of them. Uh, so member states had to consider that question. National patent offices also considered that question and developed their own policies, and the UK IPO, for instance, developed a fairly liberal policy interpretation you know, uh, of that exclusion and so read it very, very narrowly. Uh, by contrast, the EPO, the EPO board read it more broadly uh, and uh, there were a series of cases at the European Patent Office which culminated in the Wharf case uh, which was heard by the enlarged board of appeal of the European Patent Organization and uh, in that case, the Enlarged Board of Appeal, back in 2008, uh, ruled that uh, patents uh, where the practice of the invention uh, necessarily requires destruction of an embryo were uh, precluded by the exclusion. But it was a very carefully, narrowly worded uh, ruling, and it left open the question of whether downstream application of the cell lines uh, obtained from embryos which had to be destroyed uh, were patentable or not. So that question uh, was actually answered by the um, European Court of Justice uh, in a way which uh, was in some ways unexpected. Um, I personally actually was looking forward to the ruling of the European Court of Justice, uh, partly because originally my background is in philosophy. I spent 10 years in philosophy before I went over to law. So it seemed to me that the European Patent Organization with a system uh, which is not really very constitutionally embedded and, and, and sophisticated, uh, being put in charge of determining what the scope of moral exclusions would be without any further constitutional uh, parameters to guide it was having a really hard time. Whereas the European Union uh, has a very complex and sophisticated constitutional structure uh, and that structure also requires that you know, a balance should be struck between the uh, member states, the autonomy of member states and that of the European Union. Uh, it sets limits 
It defines and sets limits on the competences of the European Union, and um, it also uh, requires that the principle of subsidiarity should be applied, so the European Union should not intervene you know, and impose uh, a uniform uh, uh, view in our law, uh, unless you know, it, it's, uh, it, this is the only way it can achieve uh, unity in the internal market. So all, for all these reasons, I, was, I thought, uh, and, I write, and I wrote that much, that uh, uh, this, you know, the European Union uh, ruling would be uh, potentially a very good intervention in this, in, in the, you know, in this debate. Uh, but uh, as you probably, those of you who've read my work know, uh, I was actually quite dismayed at uh, the ruling itself. Um, and I was dismayed uh, for reasons I will explain in more detail now. So, the ruling, the court, the court, uh, you know, the European Union court uh, ruling relates to a referral from the German Federal, Federal Court of Justice uh, on the interpretation of the terms human embryo and industrial and commercial uses uh, in relation to um, an application from Oliver Brussel, um, who is a German neuroscientist, who had been granted a German national patent back in 1999 on neuroprogenitor cells, which had been derived from human embryonic stem cells, which had been imported into Germany, because Germany does not allow derivation of embryonic stem cell lines. Now, following an action by Greenpeace uh, in 2006, the German patent held by Oliver Brussel was invalidated by the Federal Patent Court as contrary to Article 62C. Brussel appealed, and the Federal Court of Justice then referred the questions of regarding the scope of application of the term human embryo and industrial and commercial uses to the European Union court. Now the court acknowledged that the definition of a human embryo is a very sensitive social issue in many member states, marked, it said, by many multiple traditions and value systems. But it reasoned that the adoption of a European uniform legal definition was needed in order to give effect to the directive. And it further reasoned that this definition and its interpretation was required to be very wide in order to comply with the principle of respect for human dignity, which is also specifically mentioned in the directive. So it therefore ruled that patents on human embryonic stem cells based in inventions are immoral and contrary to Article 6 to C when and if the implementation of the invention involves uses of human embryos requiring their destruction because such uses are contrary to respect for human dignity. The fact that the derivation may have occurred at a stage long before the implementation of the invention, the court said, is irrelevant. So essentially, at a stroke, what the European Union Court has done is rendered unpatentable inventions and research, which is lawful in many member states in Europe, because many member states allow research, which is destructive of human, uh, of human embryos, on supernumerary uh, IVF embryos. Um, and in addition, the Commission funds research on human embryonic stem cells, not the derivation of the cells themselves, but subsequent uh, research on those cells. Now it's very clear that after this ruling, it will not be possible to patent any products, any therapeutic products in Europe, uh, notwithstanding uh, the fact that these may have been many, 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 many steps removed from the original 
uh, derivation of a cell line, so that if in 10 years' time uh, a company finds, develops a product, for instance, to cure Alzheimer's or Parkinson's based on embryonic stem cell lines, which originally required destruction of a human embryo, that product will not be patentable in the European Union and probably in Europe as well uh, with EPUs. So that, of course, makes Europe a European patent-free zone, which has been very welcomed by opponents of the directive and many people who've written uh, in various newspapers and journals. However, the reality you know, of the legal basis of this directive is that it is not intended in any, in any means to uh, clamp down on patents and or, they block in, or, or, or restrain the blocking impact of patents. It's, it's absolutely the opposite. This directive was intended to enhance patent protection in Europe. Uh, so the legal basis of the exclusion is not to remove barriers <laughs> to downstream applications of stem cell technologies caused by the patents, uh, but it is to ensure that patents on cells which, whose derivation is considered, as all, all the court has said, is immoral and as contrary to human dignity, cannot be given. And neither can patents on downstream products. So, what, uh, where are we after Brussels? Well, I think from a legal perspective, this ruling is problematic. I haven't actually set down one of the um, reasons where I, and I think also the courts um, view that a, a, uniform, a uniform definition was needed. Uh, is problematic also legally because the preamble of the directive, particularly preamble 8, um, paragraph 8, for those of you who are lawyers, if you revisit it, we'll, you will see that paragraph 8 specifically said that the directive did not require the introduction of new law. It was merely intended to harmonize existing laws. However, we're now being told by the European Union, that court, that in order to give effect to this directive, a different body, a distinct body, autonomous body of EU law is needed. So that's direct, in direct contradiction to the aims I set out in the preamble. But in addition, as I said before, the court ruling is at odds with the Commission's funding policy. It is inconsistent with subsidiarity, the principle of subsidiarity and proportionality. And now these principles have been applied in other bodies of European Union law, which are very cognate in the European Union Directive on Human Tissue and Cells in 2004, uh, differs to member states. Uh, the uh, task of setting the legal parameters of uh, research on human embryos. It respects the autonomy of member states. The same goes with regulation on advanced therapies. And now in both cases as well, uh, there were attempts at the time the directive and the regulations were, adopt were, were discussed in the European Parliament. There were attempts to introduce amendments which would have specifically uh, excluded human embryonic research, and those failed. <laughs> you know, we're talking about five years ago, seven years ago. The European Parliament <laughs> did not, could not agree. <laughs> you know, that human embryonic stem cell research was immoral and had to be excluded. You know, from um, on, at a European Union level. So, in addition. Uh, there is a conflict, potentially, that's been set up here between EU law, which adopts a uniform legal definition of a human embryo, and the European Convention on Human Rights, and the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, which very, very clearly uh, acknowledges, and very recently, really, in 2006, in a case involving uh, the UK uh, and Mrs. Evans, who uh, had conceived, uh, sorry, had uh, wanted to use frozen embryos uh, against the wishes of her partner, um, the, um, an, an appeal to the European Court of Human Rights um, 
to arguing that um, it was contrary to Article 2, which protects the right to life, uh, for UK law to deny her the right to uh, use those embryos. And the European Court of Human Rights gave a very, very clear judgment. It was unanimous. It said, you know, these matters, you know, our matters for member states, the definition of a human embryo is something which lies within the margin of appreciation of member states. And the reason why is because there is no consensus in Europe you know, on uh, the morality or immorality of using human embryos in research. Very clearly, Austria has got very different views from the UK or France or Italy so, and Sweden. And uh, there is no uniform or, or, and, and view and consensus on the um, on what the term human embryo means uh, and uh, its implications for uh, protection, legal protection uh, of a human embryo. And I should say as well, it's very interesting and I don't know why, but uh, apparently it was the Commission which actually pushed for, uh, in the Brussels case, or so, made submissions uh, to the effect that a uniform definition should be adopted. And that was contrary to the submission of all the member states who made representations at the hearing. So I think you know, there is a bit of a constitutional strain that's been created by this ruling. Article 9, I've only put it in parentheses. This is uh, something that I hadn't really addressed directly, but uh, I, was, I attended a conference uh, organized by the Oxford Intellectual Property Research Center last week at which Lord Hoffman was speaking on human rights and uh, intellectual property rights. And his concluding remarks on the Brussels case were that it was fairly clear that the view of the court was a religious view and therefore that that view, uh, that, that ruling is contrary to Article 9. Article 9 in the Convention uh, protects freedom of religion. I haven't I've asked him, but I haven't heard yet uh, uh, whether he could elaborate and unpack the argument. Uh, but certainly the first step of that argument would be to show that the conception of human dignity that the court has relied upon in this case is a religious conception. And I have argued in chapter, that's precisely what I've argued in chapter 8 of my book. So you can actually, if you want, uh, pick up that that uh, part of the argument there, but then how you go get from there to breach of Article 9, I think, uh, or at least an inconsistency with Article 9 is more uh, perhaps uh, interesting to, 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 to see. So, right, so as I said in Chapter 8 of my book, I've argued that human dignity is an indeterminate concept, and I'm, you know, here at Oxford, you've got this very distinguished uh, law scholar, Ian. Uh, uh, Christopher McCrodden, who's written a wonderful article on human dignity, um, uh, which I very highly recommend, in which it precisely uh, uh, evidences that there is no uh, clear uh, core meaning of human dignity, either philosophically, historically, or in the constitutions of, uh, in national constitutions. Uh, neither is there any consensus in national constitutions or supreme courts on the application of this principle prenatally. Um, however, the EU court ruling could provide now, I think, a legal basis for an extension of this principle. And it could provide an, a basis for an extension because even though the ruling uh, on the face of it is meant to relate to patterns, the reality is that the reasoning of the court is, relates really to the morality of uses and research of human embryos. Because Greenpeace have been extremely uh, vocal in that they took the lead, they actually uh, led this case. Uh, they've had, I mean, Oliver Brussel had to face these kinds of demonstrations in Germany, which, uh, you know, as Austin Smith, who is director of the Welcome 
stem cell center in Cambridge said at the meeting that Julian mentioned, held at the Wellcome's Trust in December, is actually a distortion of science. <laughs> uh, this is, but you know, this is one of the uh, forces that um, have to be contended with. Uh, other interest groups, uh, a new kid on the block, as they say, European Dignity Watch, uh, which made its appearance uh, last spring, or at least I became aware of them last spring, uh, who've set them an organization which have set themselves um, uh, as a mission to have a permanent presence in the EU institutions to observe and provide a network uh, with first-hand information you know, on protection of fundamental rights. And then if you go to their website and you look at the um, range of values they hold, uh, they're extremely conservative values. They're probably Catholic. I don't know. They don't say that up front, but they are, uh, you know, they, they, they um, welcomed the Brussels ruling as a milestone, legal milestone in the legal protection of a human embryo. And they're right. It is a legal milestone. There is no other supranational court ruling, to my knowledge, to this effect. Uh, and of course, you know, have a look and see, you know, so they're not going away. Now, what's the risk then, uh, potentially, of expansion of human dignity in EU law is this? Human dignity, as the principle, as a fundamental principle, was embedded for the first time ever in the European Union, in the Lisbon Treaty in 2009, Article 1A. The Union is founded on the values of respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, and others. It is there. You find it's also mentioned several times in the treaty. This is the first time it's made its appearance in European Union law at the very highest level. In EU legal texts, Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU, Article 1, human dignity is inviolable. It must be respected and protected. That charter, since the Lisbon Treaty is legally binding. The EU has, sorry, the UK has opted out, but uh, the reality is that legally it is there now for the courts to uh, rely upon to guide their interpretations. The EU Directive on Human Tissue and Cells, I mentioned before, uh, also uh, respects fundamental rights in the Charter. Uh, and then it takes account of the Convention on Human Rights and Biomedicine, which I will return to in a minute. The same goes with the regulation on advanced therapy and medicinal products. And then I did a quick search on uh, the legal uh, database, to, EU legal database, to see what was happening with human dignity, how many hits per year uh, in the directives. You can see it's dramatic rise in the past few years, from 2005 to 2010. Uh, kind of steady in the cases, uh, uh, but that's probably to do with the nature of the cases <laughs> that have gone through. Convention on Human Rights and Biomedicine, um, Article 80, Research on Human Embryos, embryos in Vitro, where the law allows research on embryos in vitro, it shall ensure adequate protection of the embryo. The creation of human embryos for research purposes is prohibited. That convention has now been signed and ratified by a majority of states in even though the UK hasn't uh, signed it, uh, neither has Germany. Uh, but uh, that convention, in fact, was actually relied upon by the European Court of Human Rights for the first time in a case against the UK. I mean, it was a case concerning consent to treatment, so it wasn't so contentious. But, you know, legally, what you have is a series of uh, concepts which are now embedded, entrenched in fundamental human rights instruments. So, um, to conclude, I think that uh, the ruling uh, is extremely important. It's uh, the first time, as I said, as far as I know, that the supranational court has actually conferred legal protection on, human on frozen human embryos, albeit on the back of legislation uh, which is formally relating to patents, uh, and it, but it has done so in disregard of the diversity of moral and legal cultures in Europe. 
And that to me seems to be quite a dangerous precedent. So I would uh, conclude that it's very important to monitor the developments in the European Union now, because quite clearly a court so constituted and minded as the Brussels court has plenty of legal materials here to call upon to create further limits on research, on American stem cell research. And I conclude this is, my hobby is painting, so I thought, well, maybe this is the you know, spring, let us, we, we need to have a, a stem cell spring, um, and a legal spring, and thank you. minutes for questions and we are recording and we'll podcast uh, questions so if you don't want your question uh, podcast just let me know and we'll delete it. So any questions? Yeah. Yes, uh, um, I'm Helen Watt from the Anthony Biotech Centre and as you know the medium wrote a letter to Nature about this which was co-signed by uh, uh, 25 professors and uh, heads of medical centres around Europe. I have to say, every time I see um, an international document with the word equality, I'm always encouraged because I think that's really what writing ought to be all about, recognising that uh, things like human rights are equally held by all human beings, and by human beings I mean human organisms. If what we are, our physical entities, then our objective stake in our own future has to be respected. And so, um, from the point of view of Equality, um, would you not would you not agree that there is a case to answer here? I mean, if equality is something something that we take seriously at the international level, then why not uh, respect the human rights of, of all human organisms? Uh, and given that human embryos are human organisms, why would that be part of embryos? You mean the equality of human embryos? Uh, with persons, well, with persons. The equality of human beings, given that human being is a bodily organism, and given that this bodily organism does originate, whether we like it or not, fertilization or, or cloning, in the case of clones, then we have to, you know, take seriously the case for this position, rather than just assume that some kind of non-bodily uh, theory of what we are um, is the correct theory. Well, I think. Uh, quite clearly, if you have a particular, from the standpoint of a particular uh, moral or religious perspective, uh, uh, there is equality between embryos and persons. But that standpoint is not a shared one. Uh, and I think many, many people actually would find difficult to uh, equate the protection of human embryos with the protection of human beings. I mean, there's a case, I've written a book uh, on international bioethics and human rights, and one of the cases I looked at uh, when I was writing that book was a US case relating to what they call custody of human embryos, uh, uh, which is a similar type of situation to the Evans case. Uh, one of the expert witnesses actually described uh, his views about what uh, the morality of doing research on human embryos to, uh, he likened it to the embryos being imprisoned in their in their vessels and they had to be liberated from them. Now you see that sort of language actually is quite offensive I think to people who believe that it's persons who have rights actually postnatally, not prenatally. So yes, of course, you know, if you have from the standpoint of Catholicism of a religious perspective, I can say that uh, it is, you know, there is an inequality there, but it's not an inequality uh, which many, many would think is problematic. Indeed, if you look at the history of the drafting of human rights instruments, which I've been doing recently in relation to another book, uh, you will find that attempts to stretch the rights prenatally uh, actually failed, and often you find embedded in the explanatory wordings of those instruments uh, a qualification that the rights apply to persons, apply postnatally. Other questions? Yep, at the back. Um, I'm just wondering what your argument is or would be um, 
once you've accepted that, uh, as you were saying, the EPO did, uh, there's a problem with the destruction of embryos. Um, but you seem to be drawing a distinction then between that um, not having implications for research further down the line. Um, and it just seems to me at one point you're just drawing a sort of causation break or anything. If you think it's a problem, if there is a problem with destruction of embryos, then it seems to me that there'd be a problem with inventions 20 years down the line or whatever. I mean, why would that matter? Yeah, and I can see, I can see the logic of that argument. Uh, except that um, one of the things we did when we uh, worked on uh, the European Commission funded project was to look at the history of the drafting history of specifically of that article and uh, it was very clear that uh, from the, the trail you know the archive documentation that it was never the intention to uh, make, render unpatentable research which was lawful so whatever it is that was meant in that provision was something that wasn't intended to first of all catch embryonic stem cell research in members where the research is lawful and catch downstream applications of products. So having said that, however, there is a question mark as to well, what is, you know, I mean how are we to interpret that exclusion? And my view on this is actually aligned to the view of the European Court of Justice in the Italy case where uh, the court ruled that this particular exclusion, as distinct from the general provision on morality in 6.1, has to be given a literal interpretation, and there, therefore their member states have no discretion on the interpretation of that exclusion. Now, if you interpret that exclusion literally, it seems to me you have to draw a line between uses of human embryos, therefore the first line derivation, the first, you know, the act of deriving the cells themselves uh, from the embryo, and then subsequent uses of the cell lines, because the cell lines are not embryos. Now that, that however, uh, doesn't mean that there is, we can think of a logic, uh, rational, you know, for drawing that line in that way. Uh, that that is, in fact, the most uh, coherent line to take, given that the European Court of Justice also said in the Netherlands case that Article 1, the general moral exclusion, the interpretation of that exclusion, has to be dealt with in a very sensitive manner and careful manner by the courts, and a wide margin of appreciation is needed uh, to allow for the reality of differences, uh, moral differences amongst member states. So I think altogether, <laughs> uh, one is led to, or one should be led to reading the moral, moral exclusions, uh, the specific ones, in a different, in a, take a, take a different approach, not a wide approach, a narrow approach, and one which sticks to the words. <laughs> Do you think that the exclusion only applies to uses of embryos that result in the destruction of the embryos? Well, that's a really interesting question. And apparently, you know, the way the um, ruling, I, I think, yes, why, why do you say that? I think. Well, my reason for asking is that my initial reading of it wasn't that that was the case. Yeah. I was discussing the matter with one of the UK policy advisors yes. at the UK Patent Office on Tuesday. Yeah. And the UK Patent Office is trying to put together a practice note yeah. to establish its policy. Uh, and they've been talking, not surprisingly, with the European Patent Office and also with the other patent offices within the member states. And her view was, was seemed to be owing towards the fact that the exclusion did not apply only in cases where you result in the, in the destruction of the embryos. It applied in a much broader case where any uses of human embryos are, are used. Well, that's li I think you're driven to that conclusion if you take the literal meaning. Yeah. You know? And in fact, that's one of the... But that's a position we took in the report. But of course, that potentially is also then leads to restrictions in our research, uh, which are wider than those right. you know, uh, involving only destruction. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it doesn't affect research. I think it's important to clarify that this matter doesn't relate to research. It is not stopping research. It is the commercialization, that is the sort of trafficking of, of human embryos for profit, 
that the morality of the provision applies to is the commercialization is the exploitation. The directive is not sort of stopping research, and so I think you need to draw a clear line between research, which is specifically allowed in countries like the UK, it might not be in Germany, but it is the commercialization that is that the results in the Immoral Act. Not they're not talking about research, whether the morality of research or not. The legal reality is that for the time being, in the in the European Union, member states retain their uh, prerogative to determine uh, the parameters of research. So, from that perspective, the European this 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 ruling does nothing to that. No. You know, the European you know the UK can continue to uh, fund and 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 and, uh, and license research in our human embryos. But the practical reality is that, uh, and the implications of the rulings, logically, is that if the reason why the patent is immoral is because destructive you know, uh, uses of human embryos is immoral, then there is a shadow that's been cast on the morality of research by implication, and indeed this is what the groups which are opposing the research are now saying at the European Parliament. They are saying, look, there's been a ruling, the ruling says this type of you know, work is immoral, uh, we need to ban the research. And I can see the logic of that too. And although, as you say, quite rightly, yeah. currently, legally, the legal situation is that member states retain you know, uh, discretion to set research laws as they wish. So is the reading of the ruling and the patenting is immoral, the research behind it is immoral, what was the intention of their decision? Well, that's a very good question as well. And, in, and that's a question that's always been hanging over this provision. Uh, and what I think what the ruling makes very clear is that the patenting is immoral because the you know, research is immoral. Uh, so from the perspective of patent law, you know, even though from the perspective of EU law on human tissue, self, and regulations, and regenerative therapies, this is a matter for, uh, um, for member states to determine. So that's the tension, constitutional tension that's been set up there. I wonder if you could say something about the broader implications of this for European regulation. I mean, if, as I understand it, there was a possibility of interpreting implementation, either narrow, narrowly or broadly, and they took a very broad interpretation motivated by concern for the moral status of the embryo. And that has implications for, I think as Hoffman was implying, for the imposition of a particular view, and in some cases religious view, but in Lewis's <coughs> case a particular moral view, over, over the whole of, of patenting and, and potentially research in Europe. So I wonder if you can draw some broader implications for, as Hoffman was gesturing towards, about the regulation of, of research using the, these kinds of European processes. Well, um, in some ways, as I said, Lord Hoffman didn't elaborate. It just stated <laughs> that he thought uh, there was a uh, breach here, potentially, or inconsistency with Article 9. Well, you so, have so, and you could say, you could say, I mean, you could say, for instance, had we been in the US, you know, you could have said, okay, you know, First Amendment uh, precludes the imposition of a religious view, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, this sort of, on, on the whole of the US, on, on the whole, on, on, on states. Uh, so you could say, from a US perspective, you know, this kind of ruling, to the extent that it appears to reflect, you know, a, really, a, a particular privilege, a religious perspective, at the expense of the reality of the diversity, you know, uh, of moral perspectives, uh, is problematic constitutionally because it involves imposition of a religious view on the whole of Europe. Uh, now, how that then works, you know, legally with the convention, I think is more difficult to run as an article. But I can see, I can see the force of that. And I think, in some ways, uh, the difficulty this raises, the question this raises, I think, because there is, you know, there are, you know, really serious questions about this ruling, is how come the European Court of Justice has come to this view? Because there are, some, you know, from a legal perspective. Uh, the ruling is so problematic, and that, you know. So what's, what do you think? Well, um, you know, there is. I mean, I, I, I'm actually one of the things I, I've done recently is is uh, I've been invited by the Matrix Chambers to write a, a blog on their Utopia uh, European Union law website, uh, and so I wrote a commentary on this case 
on the uh, blog, you know, on this case. And, and I picked up the thread of commentaries from some of their other members in the chambers, particularly someone called Nick Brown, who's actually looked at uh, the constitution of the European Court of Justice and uh, the composition of its members, the methods of appointment. And uh, you can, you know, and, and reported that Lord Nance, who is now uh, part of a committee which was set up after the Lisbon Treaty to uh, um, have some kind of degree of uh, some voice in the appointment of judges, uh, Lord Nance at a lecture uh, in November pointed out that he thought the uh, Procedures were really not as robust as they should be to ensure that the court itself is first of all made up of judges who all have sufficient expertise and understanding of complex legal issues, particularly in the commercial field, you know, to uh, make rulings of this significance and to ensure the independence, you know, of some of the judges as well, uh, because the uh, current appointment procedure, in essence, uh, allows member states to nominate the judges, and there's not much really by way of scrutiny and real teeth that the committee has to give, you know, to ensure that the process is going to be, to deliver a court that is robust, you know, and independent and, and competent. So, I mean, yeah, um, I'm sorry, I think I have a very basic question because I come from the science side of things and I have, sometimes have a hard time like, wrapping my head around the ball. Um, there's obviously the commercial space and there's the research space, but especially with cell lines and, and genetically modified animal models, that is kind of blurry because we have those specialized firms that um, supply cell lines or, or animal models or whatever. So if um, if there were uh, an option to, to patent, say, um, specific cell lines, isn't there also a chance that that might massively um, impair research? Because, in fact, a lot of research um, depends on a very limited number of cell lines in some areas. Yeah, and that kind of argument, I think, uh, relates to the variety of patents, you know, and the extent to which granting patents up, very upstream in the research chain uh, is actually, at the end of the day, something that's in the public, uh, for the public benefit, because of course, you know, there's been huge amounts written on the blocking impact. Of, in the US, you know, 16,000 gene patents granted, nobody knows how that's actually going to play out eventually downstream, and, it may, and to, to date, you know, there isn't strong as yet evidence that this is causing problems, but, you know, the first report uh, which was produced by a committee which was set up by the Secretary of State for Health, um, which was, I think it was chaired by, um, I can't remember the name of the chair, but uh, uh, it was published in 2010, uh, looked at diagnostic patterns, and is the, you know, for the first time actually found very clear evidence that potentially those patterns did adversely affect clinical, you know, uh, um, you know, um, care and, uh, and, 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 and access to research. So, you know, there, there is a huge debate there relating to uh, the soundness of granting patterns on isolated parts of the human body as the directive actually says, you know, is, you know, legal, is lawful. Uh, but that to me is a very different kind of debate. And in fact, in some ways, you know, I did, I have written again in that collection, one of the things I did uh, um, as follow-up to the European Union project was to look at the patents granted by the UKIPO on stem cells. And that was quite a discovery because it turned out that the UK, uh, on its own, you know, following its own policy, which was very different from the EPO, uh, had actually granted, by the time I was writing, up to 100 patents on the cell cultures and the cell lines. And some of them, quite a large proportion of them, about I think a third of them, were to the U.S. Corporation Jerome. And those patterns themselves, uh, when you looked at them, are extremely broad. And in fact, I did a study separately, which I published in the Stanford Journal of Science Law and Society, which tracked the fate of the Jerome applications at different patent offices around the world. And it turned out that the UK IPO had been by far <laughs> the most generous. The US, in fact, had ended up rejecting the patents you know, after several appeals. So, you know, 
had those patents still been enforced? Obviously, now they're not anymore. I mean, they're there, but they can't be enforced. Uh, the uh, you know, Giron would have been in a very uh, powerful position in the UK to determine uh, the you know the the direction you know of commercialization downstream. You know, they, they had undoubtedly the power to you know set licensing fees at, at whatever level you know they thought was commercially appropriate. So I mean, there are very legitimate questions relating to patents on isolated cells, patents upstream in the discovery chain, but there's to me, raise different questions altogether, and actually, in the directive, very clearly, the directive very clearly says these types of uh, subject matter is patentable. Probably got time for one more question. No, I was just going to pick up a point you raised about the competence of the, um, the ECJ itself. I mean, I think that is the big issue, and I think that is a very worrying issue. I mean, I've heard other UK judges talk about uh, the competence of these people, and one of them commented about the appointment procedure. And I think, this is hearsay and whatever, uh, I think it was the Greek judge of the, on the ECJ said that the, the Greek government put him up there because they didn't want him on the Greek sort of national circuit. So they think, right, this judge isn't any good, let's send him up to the yeah. ECJ. Um, but it is this, this, um, this court that is producing all these rulings that has going to have massive effect within Europe. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah, we need to be satisfied that they're competent, you know, both technically, scientifically, morally as well. And so independence, that they have a required degree of independence. You know? yeah, exactly. It's absolutely crucial, particularly in a field where the EU law here about technological patterns. I mean, this yeah. is one of the fields in which you know, there is forecast huge economic growth in the future. So to have a court uh, coming up with these sorts of rulings, actually, we don't even understand. I think, you know, one of the things is I'm not even sure about the scope of this ruling. And I've discussed this with the UKPO, and it's very, it's, it could potentially even catch, I think, uh, the reprogramming, nuclear reprogramming type uh, Cells, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, either you get through the cloning route, but because the reprogramming takes back the cells. If you get, to, I mean, if you get to the blog I've written on, on the uh, on Utopia, you will see the reference to the Nature article, in which potentially uh, raises questions as to whether uh, you know the the research, which was actually in fact uh, uh, taken up by scientists to avoid the political and religious controversy over the embryonic stem cells could potentially now also be caught you know, by this ruling. Uh, it's, it's, you, know, you can have rulings of this kind and the implications in this field are just unknown. I mean, really, we're just now into a completely uncharted territory. It's bad news, really. The last comments. Well, thank you for a wonderfully comprehensive and uh, clear presentation. It's really one of the best presentations I've heard on stem cells in a long time. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.